Well, the rails are washed out north of town. We gotta head for higher ground. We can't come back till the water goes down. Five feet high and rising. Well, it's five feet high and rising. This is not the media. This is hell. Johnny Cash is absolutely at the very top of my list when it comes to driving music. It really was fantastic going through a huge rainstorm last weekend at the front edge of it. Huge blinding lightning and 15 feet of visibility. Listening to Johnny Cash made it all good. Covering the world under the mistaken assumption that the U.S. actually cares more about democracy than it does capitalism. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry, and Alex has this week's question from Hell. Alex? Uh, this week's question from Hell is, uh, where are you going on your final vacation? Where are you going on your final vacation? What inspired you to ask that question? Is that we had a book called uh, Destination Anthropocene. Oh, and so you're taking it on the tourism thing. I got you. Leave your answer now at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Where are you going on your final vacation? This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas by sociocultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore. That interview and last week's show are both available at our website, thisishell.com. Listen throughout today's show to hear all of our listeners' responses. Again, the question from hell is, where are you going on your final vacation? Where are you going on your final, very final, last ever vacation? So far this week, live streaming from our kinda complete studios above a pool table in a bar. During our two-hour show on Tuesday at 10 a.m. Chicago Central Standard Time, here at thisishell.com, I explained to you how I have hated the circus since I was a kid, and the equally loathsome media circus has the same ringleaders demanding the spotlight, distracting us from jugglers, hypnotizing viewers as acrobats, work to trick and dismay the audience who have grown numb to the abuse the circuit animals are experiencing, when suddenly some clown snaps you from your delirium and into the shock of fear. So yeah, the media circus is exactly like the actual circus. And hopefully and thankfully, those kind of circuses are all disappearing. We also discussed fake meat, as in, as in meat grown from animal muscle tissue, with historian Benjamin Aldous Wergaft, author of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh, and the Future of Food. Fake meat can save us from all of the problems the world faces today. Supporters believe cultured meat, as it is known, can end the abuse of animals, be a major factor in combating climate change. It can even save capitalism from global warming and insulate the rich from the coming reckoning of inequality. Or at least that's what their proponents hope. No, we weren't talking about impossible burgers because those have already proven possible. We talked about the real impossible burgers that nobody has quite perfected yet. But don't worry, Google seems fascinated by fake meat, so what could possibly go wrong? We gave you some rotten history, and on Tuesday we also had the return of a couple of guests. Adam Kotzko came back on the show to tell us that evangelicalism is simply a religious ra rationalization for people to be capitalist dicks without worrying about any of the consequences. And Andrew Kennis was back on to explain why El Paso is such a site of racist hate leading to August's racially motivated massacre of 22 people in a Walmart. 
Tuesday's show is online at thisishell.com in case you missed it on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This is how we're not as much about current events as we are about current ideas, if that helps. And to be honest, I, I really don't think it does. Coming up on the show, should water be a right or a commodity? Well, you are going to be surprised by how much the two commodities and rights have in common. Then we'll get the historical context for the UAW-GM strike that reveals exactly how greedy GM is and the level of corruption in the UAW. I'll tell you what we did on Patreon this week, and we'll wrap up this week's show by getting a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. And this week, it's a special Rosh Hashanah truth. We'll also find out uh, what's happening on upcoming shows from Alex. And, of course, we've got a lot of people to thank for joining us on Patreon, for supporting us by going to thisishell.com and liking or uh, clicking on support and for sharing This Is Hell and feeding the insatiable social industry that is consuming us all. Our guests are anthropologist Andrea Ballestero, author of A Future History of Water, Andrea contemplates the future of water as a human right or as a commodity and how those two ideas intersect. And one creepy way they intersect for me is, if I understand Andrea's writing correctly, and there is no guarantee I do, some private interests are now supporting the idea of water as a human right. Andrea runs the ethnography studio, an interdisciplinary experimental space that brings together students interested in the peculiarities of ethnography as a textual form, as a research strategy, and as a modality of knowledge production. The studio is structured as a space where intellectual labor grows out of generosity, rigor, and collaboration. Then we'll get to some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, again, Where are you spending your final vacation? Where are you spending your final vacation? After sharing some of your responses, we'll talk to activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams, who wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three American Automakers. There's a long history of the UAW selling out workers while prioritizing what's best for the union hierarchy, and what's good for the union bosses is often... What's best for the company bosses, too, Thomas's Ph.D. dissertation titled UAW Incorporated, The Triumph of Capital, examines corruption in the UAW. That writing is the basis of his forthcoming book that will examine the impact institutional corruption within the UAW has on the rank and file. We'll also have a hellish word of the week, a word that I did not understand, had no idea of its meaning, but is a word that was used in the writing of a guest on this week's show. We'll tell you what word I didn't know, which guest's vocabulary I don't understand, and wrap up this week's show as we do most week's shows. And that, again, is with a moment of truth from the luscious lobes of Jeff Dorchin. And this week, it is a special Rosh Hashanah truth. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Around the world, activists and corporations have been fighting over water being a commodity or a human right, and what supporters of water as a right hoped would be a truly transformative outcome. Instead, what they discovered was water as a commodity and water as a right, and commodities and rights in general have a lot more in common than they realized. Here to help guide us through the contested space of water as a right, or a commodity, anthropologist Andrea Ballestero, author of A Future History of Water. Welcome to This Is Hell, Andrea. 
Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Andrea is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Rice University. You can find out more about Andrea at andreabastero.com. That's Andrea, B-A-L-L-E-S-T-E-R-O.com. A Future History of Water is Andrea's first book and can be downloaded as a PDF from the website of her publisher, Duke University Press, at dukeupress.com. You mentioned a 2006 protest in Mexico City at the World Water Forum where activists were chanting, water is a right, not a commodity. Water is a right, not a commodity. So I guess for us to start this conversation, we have to know what it means to have water as a right and what it means to have water as a commodity. So what is meant by water as a right? Does it simply mean that everybody gets free water? That's exactly at the core of the struggles that I have been following uh, for a while now. And there's two ways to answer that question. Uh, As an anthropologist, and maybe this is a good opportunity to share a little bit of what we as anthropologists do, we're very interested in asking these questions and answering these questions in an extremely localized way. In other words, we're interested in how the world works, and so we find answers to these questions in the phenomena that surround us, rather than in abstract discussions of what these things mean, which is a valid and important uh, analytic practice as well. But for us, the question is, how is it that the idea of a human right, for instance, takes shape in a particular place in the world and for particular people? And that was exactly what I was trying to figure out when I started to work with uh, activists and uh, technical personnel who had exactly that question. We agree with the idea that water should be a human right, but what exactly does that mean? And the answer is it means different things in different parts of the world. Uh, My research uh, I conducted in Costa Rica and Brazil, and even in between those two places, you see very different circumstances. In Costa Rica, we are... Uh, the result, the country, and I say we because I'm originally from Costa Rica, um, our state has made historically investments in public resources that make it so that a large number of the population has access to either potable water or water that is treated in one way or another. Now, there's been problems that I can talk about uh, a little bit later if you want me to, but there's this basic foundation. So in Costa Rica, the idea that water is a human right means uh, on the one hand that its price should be affordable people that are uh, not as well off economically in society need to be able to afford this basic necessity and also that the quality of that water needs to meet the standards for health for human health and also that there that we need to consider that there has to be enough flow in natural water bodies so that the non-humans that also depend on water can uh, access it or it can participate in the ecosystem uh, processes that it makes possible. So in Costa Rica, that was uh, the the thinking that the activists and the uh, technical personnel that I was working with um, shared with me to respond to the question of what is a human right. In northeast Brazil, in the state of Ceará, uh, where I did the other part of my research, the, the answer is a little bit different because in the state of Ceará, there's much less coverage for people. Um, there's a, a large number of, of 
population that is uh, disseminated in different parts of the state over a large territory. So the investment has uh, for had been for a long time very low in bringing water to those communities. So there it was a matter of access in the first place. In addition to that, the northeast of, of Brazil is a semi-arid environment, which means that they have very little rainfall. Um, and when they have it, it's all concentrated in a very short period of time, which makes it that it's difficult to store water for the dry um the dry season. And so over there, the answer was one that that was different. It was a matter of access in the first place. How is it that we move and get water to people uh, uh, so that they can fulfill their basic needs? So as you see, the answers vary. Uh, nevertheless, there is a general international understanding that has uh, grown out of the United Nations, which means that member countries have been working on producing this understanding for a long time. Um, and this understanding was passed by the UN General Assembly in 2010. And over there, they give us a series of, of adjectives um, that uh, qualify what the human rights to water is. And they, and they in the UN, and also uh, in all of uh, Latin American countries, we're thinking at this moment in history about the connection between the human rights to water and the human rights to sanitation as two things that need to be uh, thought about um, in, in an integrated way. But some of the uh, adjectives that qualify what a human right to water uh, is include uh, sufficiency, so having sufficient water, safe water, physically accessible, and affordable. And this covers uh, domestic and personal uses. In other words, the idea of a human right is bound to the individual and it's in her basic existence. It's not necessarily for industrial activities or economic production or other aspects for which water is also crucial. So uh, as an anthropologist, as you were saying, you focus on specific events. And I started wondering how distracted we can be by just focusing on the abstract. There are a lot of people who are very critical of the sanitation program that is taking place in India right now under Modi. Many people say that it's had great success, but other people say that their metrics suggest that that has been an exaggerated success. So how distracted can we be by the abstract? We were talking to Bathsheba DeMuth on our show about mm -hmm. her book, uh, The Floating Shore, about Beringia and how what is the socialism or capitalism that is created in Western Europe because the agricultural, ecological, and biological uh, necessities of Europe that are very different from what happens in Beringia, those, that abstract of socialism or capitalism can't simply just be implemented within Beringia. So can there be a, an abstract global water pact that everybody can be a part of, or does it need to be fragmented and taking care and addressing all the local individual uh, challenges that they have with water? Abstract ideas play a crucial role in our political, affective, material lives. So I don't think that we... Uh, so there's discussion about this. Uh, for some people, abstractions are always problematic. I understand abstractions as loose spaces in which we can reach agreements that can have different material and specific configurations 
in uh, concrete places. Let me make this more concrete. Am I happy that there is a definition that says that the human right to water entitles everyone to and all of the adjectives uh, that I gave you? I am definitely happy that there was that political agreement. It's an abstract statement that if you just take it in its own terms, doesn't give you very much. Now, what that has unleashed is a series of very practical and place-specific activities and events and investments of money and energy and political um, will to give this a concrete form. And so what I, the way I think about this question is that we cannot... Uh, separate the abstract from the specific, but what we need to do is be smarter about how they work together. How is it that they feed off of each other or how they contradict each other? And we need to be maybe resorting less to either or forms of thinking. So it's either abstract or practical. And instead of that, thinking and acting in a way that integrates the complexity of the specific and the abstract, the concrete and the abstract. And that, I think, uh, would get us maybe uh, away from the problems that only relying on the abstract creates. So that such as saying, well, we have a recognition of the human right to water, things are, are we're in very good shape now. Well, evidently we are not. Uh, because the, the magic or or the devil is in the details always. Uh, and, and those details are shaped by abstract ideas, concepts that orient our action and our thinking and our critical skills, and also by the specific engagements, the people that we talk to, the meetings that we attend, the measurements that we use, the investments that we make in certain kinds of technologies and not others. So I wouldn't frame it as an either or, but instead, I would frame it as, let's be smart uh, about how we can mobilize abstract ideas so that we can create concrete and specific worlds that are better than what we have at the present. And I think that's kind of a recurring theme in your book, this uh, dismissal of either or thinking, which I really, really enjoyed. Is the debate over the human right or commodification of water about more than just water. Is this a bigger debate about commodification versus rights in general? Because I'm wondering how big of a battle this is. Does whatever, whichever side wins, if you will, uh, the commodification versus human right of water portend what direction life on earth will go? That is in the trajectory of life commodified or a life filled with rights. You're, you're touching exactly on one of the points that I hope uh, comes through in the book, which is the following. Um, when, we, when we talk about water, because it is such a fundamental, essential thing for life, human and not, um, I often find that it is surrounded by a certain mystique, a certain idea that it is so complex, so large, so important, that there's very little that we can do. And so we often replicate numbers, like um, 90% of the natural disasters that are, we know, not natural, but are the social consequences of our, uh, the way in which we live in the planet, uh, are related to water. Um, or that... Um, 
only by 2015, only about 40% people in the world had access to safe sanitation. So that magnitude of problems and that uh, mystique of the water-related crisis that we are living often makes us forget that in a very concrete sense, water is very mundane. And that means that it is embedded or that it is integral part or tightly connected with all of these other things that we take as separate, the economy, the law, the institutions uh, that we have in our society to allow us to live collectively, the idea that we can pay for some things and we should not pay for other things, the idea that you should go to court if you have a problem with your neighbor rather than solving your problems in some other ways. Water is all of that. So I really like your question because it it gives me an opportunity to to emphasize this point that sometimes what we need to do is leave the mystique aside and be very, very uh, practical in the sense of opening our eyes to the very specific, and I'm going back to that word in that sense, and concrete forms in which this is playing out around us. And what we find when we do that is that the question of distributing water and making it accessible is entrenched in questions of capitalism and law. And it is entrenched in questions of how is it that we decide what should be exchanged for profit and what should not be exchanged for profit. And, you know, there's a long history uh, of people that have not only thought about the question of capitalism and law as scholarly matters, but most importantly, a really long history of people in the world creating different tools, making experiments, uh, trying to put together systems that are more just so that people are not excluded from things as basic as water because they don't have the means to pay for it. And so my invitation in the book is to think about water as a matter of law and as a matter of economy or economics, and particularly of capitalism, which is the dominant mode of uh, economic organization in which we're living. And that takes us to the to very concrete issues. Like you get a bill at the end of the month. Where, is the, where does that bill come from? And where does the number in that bill come from? How was it produced? What were the elements that were considered and translated into a mathematical formula so that you can end up with $19 or $200 or $300 uh, in your water bill if you're in the United States? And you talk about how they valued the price of water in Costa Rica using the consumer price index and how that was a misleading way in which to understand how much would be a uh, protecting people's human rights at the same time as having them pay for the consumption and the distribution of production of clean and safe water. What was wrong with applying the consumer price index to the pricing of water in Costa Rica as an example of how indexes can go wrong and as an example of how valuing water can go wrong? So the situation was uh, the the following. In Costa Rica, by law, um, and this is true of, of many cities or countries around the world, uh, utilities cannot profit 
from the uh, provision of water services. So what you get charged uh, at the end of the month should be enough for the utility to cover its costs and generate a surplus that would allow it to invest in improving its technology and um, any necessary uh, technological changes that need to be made. So what the and in Costa Rica also, as is the case in many other parts of the world, those prices are not defined by utilities but are defined by regulators. These regulators are the ones that uh, check on the financial statements of the utilities to see that they are uh, fulfilling that legal obligation, and based on that, they decide whether it's warranted for the utility to ask for a higher price in case they're not covering their costs or they should not be granted a higher price uh, to charge to users. So in Costa Rica, uh, what has happened is um, if there is no reason why technology needs to be changed or a major investment needs to be made or if the utility has in their coffers enough money to operate and make any changes that uh, they they have planned, um, they still can ask for an adjustment of their prices according to the inflation rate. So if inflation has gone up, which is uh, something that in the past few years we haven't seen, but for a while, inflation was going up a lot in, in many parts of the world. Uh, but in Costa Rica, for a while, it has not been the case because we're tied to U.S. economy in so many ways. Um, and so when they were deciding to update the price, they were using the inflation rate. And what is it? What is the inflation rate? The inflation rate is really the aggregation uh, of the, the measurement that the consumer price index gives you. This is a very technical discussion, so uh, I apologize for going uh, for long, but it needs to be laid out exactly. step by step. Yeah. Fine. Uh, and so the CPI, which works the same way here in the United States, how does it work? Well, there's, a, there's this number of people in Costa Rica is the Insti Institute for Statistics and Census, um, that goes and collects information about what people are buying. What are the things that a typical household goes and purchases every month? And then they trace the variation of those prices um, month to month, and that's how they construct the index, and ultimately that's how they uh, get to the inflation rate. But the crucial question here is, who is that household? How do you know that you're talking about a household uh, consuming a certain number of goods? Well, what has happened is that technically there have been some changes since the 1920s when the first uh, CPI was calculated in Costa Rica. And the definition of what counts as a household has been changing. First, the CPI was based on uh, um, the idea of the cost of life. Then it went to the idea of a middle-class consumer or working-class citizen household. Then it went to middle and low-income consumers, and all of these have st statistical implications of how they do that, until the, 20, the beginning of the 21st century, when we completely erased any category of um, 
the household and now they it has become basically a census of consumption uh, almost a census i should say because they are looking for the consumption the things that are in the households of 95% of the of people that live in the country and that what that does is that it it changes the universe to all of the consumption that is happening in the country and not the consumption of the people that are at the lower level levels of the economic spectrum. So the people that have least money to spend. In other words, it inflates consumption to make it seem that more, a lot of people are consuming a lot of things when in fact the idea of a human right and keeping water affordable is something that should have at, at its center those people in society that have the, in, the least ability to pay for water, that is people that would qualify as quote-unquote poor. And so by shifting the definition of what is a household in the a uh, calculation of the consumer press index, something that in theory has nothing to do with water. Um, they have in fact in used a calculation that is not uh, privileging the needs or paying more attention to the needs of the poorer parts of the population. Now, what I'm trying to do in the book is to say this series of technical steps require us to have a certain knowledge of how these things work, which of course not everybody has, uh, but many people do, and not only people in academia, I'm, pe I'm speaking of everyday people. Uh, and so we need to be thinking a little bit more in our mobilizations and in our political organization about these very technical decisions because we can find in those ways in which we can push government officials and uh, state agencies to change their techniques in a way that is, is more, uh, it goes more directly into the central questions that, that a, a notion like the human right tries to address. That is, if we take the time to look at these specifics, we can find particular junctures where we can have important um, impact in changing the way in which these are, things are unfolding around the world. We I hope that was clear. It was, uh, that was a lot. No, no, that was clear. It was very clear, and it was a fantastic answer. We are speaking with anthropologist Andrea Ballestero. She is author of A Future History of Water. You can find out more about Andrea at andreaballestero.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at A-B-A-L-L-E-S-2, and her organization, the Ethnography Studio. You can find out more about that organization by going to Ethnography Studio. Dot org. So how much do indices that we may just think of as, oh, that metric that they mention every so often on the news, how much do these indices, like the CPI, how much do they have control over our lives, whether we realize it or not? They are shaping so many things uh, that, that, uh, sh that determine our daily lives. Like you going to buy, to purchase a uh, uh, a cup of coffee is intimately related to those indices and then that then will return uh, as more general economic policy uh, measures. And I like to, to think about this uh, in the following terms. We know these days it's on the news a lot and a lot of people are talking about big data and how 
there's all of these uh, companies and government agencies that are collecting all of this information to then make decisions that uh, invite us to consume certain products, but also that qualify and classify us in different rankings in different ways. Uh, but the original big data moment for me is this idea of the consumer price index and the way in which we have been collecting this kind of information, maybe not necessarily tied to an individual, but this large uh, set of data points that give us an idea of what a collective is in this particular case, a collective defined through consumption, which is key in this case. You write that the demonstrators at the World Water Forum were convinced, as were many other participants in the forum, that water should be a universal human right accessible to all, and for that reason should never be commodified. But they also knew that those distinctions need to be produced in all sorts of places. Courts were not the only spaces where rights were enacted, and markets did not hold a monopoly over commodities commoditization practices. Where else are rights enacted but the courts? I thought law was supposed to be the arbiter of our rights, just the law, just justice. Mm -hmm. So the law has a very expansive life, well beyond courts. Uh, so ideas of rights and ideas of the law are structuring our interactions in all sorts of spaces. The moment at the moment in which you say uh, sign a contract, uh, a contract that does not need to be uh, challenged in court, just by the fact of you agreeing to enter into this relation with another uh, human being or an organization. And under, the, under particular sets of rules, that is a moment in which the law is shaping our daily lives. Um, in Costa Rica, uh, this happened two ways. Um, because utilities are, uh, or basically the largest utility in the country, and also the smaller municipal utilities, all of those are entities of public law. That means they're public entities in the sense that they belong to the state, not that they're publicly traded. But uh, since the 1950s, there has been a very important program that um, supports local organizations to build community aqueducts that then they manage and uh, they treat the water and they charge for the water to their um, neighbors and so on. 35% of the country uh, provides water or is provided water using this mechanism. So this... Um, these organizations, these community organizations, have a very uh, clear idea of what their responsibility is and how they manage uh, the relations with people in their towns when those people cannot pay. When those, in the cases that there are, uh, there are very small uh, towns that are um, economically. Uh, depressed and don't have as many job sources. Um, in those instances, the community organizations are the ones managing uh, the water provision. And so the question is, what is it that a neighbor basically does when she knows that her her the person that lives two blocks from their house does not have enough to pay for water for that month? Um, and so at, in that space, you're seeing 
the the struggle between these two two ideas how is it that this person is going to implement the notion of a human right or whether she's going to go with uh, a more clear-cut commodity relation in which nothing should be taken into consideration, this person should just pay. So you see that this is a very concrete uh, setting in which the distinction between a human right and a commodity needs to be produced. And that distinction is emerging in a legal context, because this organization, the Community Aqueduct, of course, has a legal obligation to collect um, fees. It also has a legal obligation to provide the service. It also has a legal obligation to keep their technology in good shape so that they can provide good quality water. And if they don't have enough payments from their neighbors, then they won't have enough money to pay um, for the materials that they need or the chemicals that they need to treat the water. So you see that the law is much more than what happens in courts. It is shaping the everyday life of people all over the place. And this tension between the principle of what a human right is uh, versus what a commodity is takes form in these very grounded, localized forms. And I don't, want to, I don't want to imply with this that this only happens in small-scale uh, settings. That I just gave you that example because it's a very nice, uh, uh, nice one that reveals very clearly this issue. But the same thing is happening with large-scale infrastructures, like cities, when, when you see a city that is decided this that has decided to interrupt the service because you have not paid it is very clear what is the logic uh, that is at play in that instance and we have examples for the of this in the United States I was thinking about the kind of trans the potential for transport transformative societal change in considering uh, water as a human right. Is water difficult to organize, to categorize and understand because water defies borders, because water defies nations? Is water a challenge to the very concept of nationalism? And does that make the debate over water as a commodity or a human right that much more important? Absolutely. It's challenging, and that's why it's so important. Uh, so the, the challenge, I take the challenge as an opportunity for mobilization. Uh, I take the challenge as an opportunity for technical creativity. I think that uh, we are, we would be very, we would be better off uh, if we devoted energy to thinking with the technical dimension and promoting our ideas in that space as well. In other words, we need to take the abstract, the principled stance and translate it into concrete forms that we can put in front of decision makers so, so that they see that this is an option. You could do it this way. When they come and say, it is too challenging, it is too difficult, we can't do anything about it. This is not naive. I'm completely aware of, of the geopolitical and the economic forces that are pulling things in certain directions. Uh, but what I learned through my research is that sometimes... Uh, our aspiration of all-encompassing change leaves us um, 
waiting for that moment and maybe not taking advantage of seemingly smaller opportunities for transformation that might, in, in our thinking might not account for whole societal transformation. But I would say that no whole societal transformation has begun as such. Societal transformation has always begun in a very concrete and specific form. Um, and that is the opening that then unleashes new possibilities. And so we live in a world in which since 2005, there was a very famous uh, proclamation of the World Bank president saying that the future wars will be, will be water wars. And that language I find uh, problematic. In I, I much rather think about what are the specific forms that we want to change. I want to change the fact that this particular utility is uh, having a return of investment of 7%. Why is it that they have 7%? Where is that number coming from? If we want to abide by the idea of a human right to water, shouldn't that uh, percent be more like 3 or 2? And, and that way is the way in which I believe we can unleash a societal transformation at the same time that we keep pressure in other spaces uh, of, of public expression uh, and, and, and at the same time that we demand an imaginary of total change in the action. I really uh, believe in puncture, puncturing the system in very concrete spaces. You write that most of the world's water between 70 and 85 percent is used for irrigation. The overwhelming majority of the market share, Robeco Sam, an investment f firm in uh, Switzerland, is interested in is public or municipal provision for human consumption and industrial use. In other words, the distribution and structure of the financial universe does not match the hydraulic universe. Tracing where most H2O flows to and from does not necessarily take us to the areas where most financial attention is put. Why doesn't the market, market target the greatest supply to be commodified? Why focus on urban use of water and ignore rural? What does that reveal to us about the people who are proponents for the commodification, commoditization of water? Mm -hmm. We can't think about these uh, issues independently, and your question is great because it turns uh, our, our eyes to the question of uh, agriculture and what are the agricultural subsidies uh, that are being put in place and for whom? Because one uh, one really important point is that more more than half of the of the food in the world is produced through rain fed agriculture. So the the water that is going to irrigation it's going to uh, just a part. A smaller part of the of the world, and so why is it that uh, we are paying so much attention to the irrigation um, uh, question, but not so much to in terms of fi financial interests? Um, I, I said that in the opposite direction. Let me say it again. So why is it that we're not putting so much attention uh, to uh, irrigation in terms of financial interests, and we are putting so much to uh, municipal uh, services or industrial services. Well, that's because the users are distributed in that space. In other words, the people that pay in the municipal 
uh, or human consumption world are many, 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 many people rather than a few agricultural companies. And so as in terms of widening the base of your um, your customer base, to put it that way, if we want to follow the commoditization logic, it's better to have higher numbers of, of people than just to depend on a few uh, consumers that are going to pay for this. Um, so I, my understanding, the way I see it, is that it is a matter um, of the investments that are needed as well, the the captured uh, consumer base or user base. With water, you usually have a geographic monopoly. Like there's usually one company that is the one that is uh, providing water services to a particular area, and um, and they are captured in the in in if you think about it in terms of markets, right? They, they can't go to another company. If we think about it as a collective investment, and if we think about it as a matter of uh, public goods and an opportunity to decide together and to give material form to what it, lives to, what it means to live in society, then it, it looks very different. This is a collective investment that is not directed towards profit-making, but it is uh, a reinvestment in our future and in our collectivity. And that is the struggle. Uh, during the 90s, there was this very intensive privatization wave in Latin America. Costa Rica was not part of it, but in the rest of the continent, you saw it. Um, after 2000, there's a, a much more measured uh, uh, attitude towards privatization and now we're thinking more or people are thinking more in policy circles about uh, public-private partnerships which in some cases are just privatization uh, with different with a different dress but in other cases are uh, sometimes interesting arrangements in which responsibility can be shared by public and private um, actors. You write that during the first decade of the 21st century, the international establishment saw the idea that water should be a human right as contentious. All sorts of interpretations circulated about its implications. Then you quote a water policy expert from the United Kingdom who you met at the Stockholm Water Week in 2009, telling you emphatically, the problem is that those who want water to be a human right don't understand that somebody needs to pay to bring it to people's houses. They want water to be free, and that is just unviable. That seems to make the argument almost pointless that we simply cannot have water as a human right because it costs to get water to people's homes. Nobody is going to do every aspect of getting an adequate supply of free, safe, and clean water to everyone's home for free, so water must be a commodity, not a human right. What is missed in that logic? Or is water under capitalism, like everything, a commodity, and you have no right to anything as everything is private property owned by someone? I was uh, stumped by that by that comment when that person uh, made it because he was a person that was uh, open and 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 uh, supportive of the idea of the human right to water. And then he said that, and for me, I had never heard any of the people that I had worked with um, say that water should be free. In fact, there's plenty uh, work in anthropology, geography, and other fields that show that people, 
first of all, people are not dumb. <laughs> people know that there's a cost involved in getting moving water from one place to another and treating it. So the question is not uh, the, uh, as, uh, an absolute rejection of payment. The question is just payment, that is making a payment that is just, and second, that the resources that are being transferred from the hard work of everyday people making a living to uh, an institution or a company that is providing water, that those dollars don't end up in the creation of profits, disguised or not. So people invest in collective endeavors. There's no question about that. We know from all over the world there's evidence about this. People are willing to give some of their money so that they can have clean water in their households. Otherwise, the labor of making water available falls usually on women and children who have to figure out a way to get this water to the household. So there is no question that if they have resources, they are willing to invest them in uh, making water accessible to their household. So it's a false, it's a false dichotomy. It's a fall for me. It's a false uh, choice. It's people are, the people that I work with have never said that water should be free. They said the amount that we pay for it should be accessible to those of us that have lower economic means. And those of those that have higher means should be paid a little bit more. And that is the way it should be. And, and that is actually the direction in which um, regulators are going in Costa Rica, trying to figure out subsidy systems that benefit um, the people that are in harder financial circumstances and ask more from those that are uh, in better shape. And we've just skimmed the surface of your book, and we're already 40 minutes into our interview. So, uh, And I've got like about 55 more questions for you. But uh, one of the questions I did want to move on to because of the title of your book, A Future History of Water, and the fascinating writer, writing you do about how we perceive our future, you write how you, in your writing, move from histories of the future to conceptualizing future histories. By inverting these two concepts, I want to tap into the non-imaginable dimension of the future. But this non-imaginable future is not unimaginable because it is too traumatic or extreme. Rather, it is unimaginable because of its unpredictability. What happens when activism insists and only focuses on the imaginable and predictable? What happens to that kind of activism? We lose track of the many openings that are around us. That's what, what worries me. Uh, and I, another way to say this, because I, I realize that the, the, the language is a bit tricky, so you have to read it and sit with it and think for a while. Um, but another way to think about it is if you focus on a cinematic future, like you have a, a, an image of a movie of what the future is going to be like, you all of a sudden uh, become limited by that image. You recognize what you see in that image and things that are different Look, fall out of sight. And this goes back to my argument that sometimes we discard things that we feel are inconsequential, that they won't have any effect 
in changing uh, the future because we cannot recognize them or we cannot fit them in that image that we have of the yet to come or of the future. Instead, what I want to invite uh, all of us to think about is those things that we say, this is good for nothing, this will change nothing, I should not waste time with this. And think a little bit more carefully, sit for a moment with it, and assess whether there might be an opening there for concrete action that will bring about change, even if at the moment we cannot fully say how that change is going to look like. And what should guide that decision? I think what should guide it is principles of responsibility, shared responsibility about different parts in society, uh, and creating structures that are uh, a little bit stable in time. And I'll give you a short um, example because I know we're out of time. In Costa Rica, one of the chapters of the book looks at the way in which uh, activists have been trying for a long time to change the constitution uh, so that it, uh, to amend the constitution so that it has uh, the human right to water in it, uh, in one of the articles. Many people say that is completely unnecessary because there's all of these other laws and international agreements that Costa Rica has signed that already recognize the human right to water. But they insist that doing so, putting the human right to water in the Constitution, is a way to uh, create a structure of responsibility for the future. Even if we don't know exactly what that future is going to be like, even if we don't know that, say, all of the utilities are going to be privatized or that we're going to completely run out of water, although that is becoming more likely globally, um, even if we don't know that, we still need to create structures of responsibility. And so they have put a lot of effort into that. And so my, what I learned from all of them is that responsibility to act does not require a very clear cinematic image of what the future is going to be like. You need to create the future in the everyday, even if you don't know exactly how it's going to look. And when I was reading that, I was thinking about how often the media insists on talking to a spokesperson who is in charge of a movement or a group of activists, or they insist on getting the list of demands, and they insist on having that predictive future, it seems mm -hmm. like, every time the media is talking to activists. And so I thought that was a really fascinating part of your book. We have been speaking with anthropologist Andrea Ballestero. She is author of A Future History of Water. Uh, she runs the Ethnography Studio, an interdisciplinary experimental space that brings together students interested in the peculiarities of ethnography as a textual form, as a research st strategy, and as a modality of knowledge production. The studio is structured as a space where intellectual labor grows out of generosity, rigor, and collaboration. You can find out more about Ethnography Studio by visiting ethnographystudio.org. One last question for you, Andrea, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, mm -hmm. you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response in the face of climate change can the privatization of water save capitalism is the privatization of water all about trying to continue try this fantasy of creating moral capitalism that can uh, be saved in the face of climate change i think uh it's not possible uh which is not to say that uh there are ways in which private spaces 
can be generative of new forms of sociality. Uh, so capitalism is not the only form in which we can understand certain forms of, uh, of private um, resources or private uh, uh, spaces, geographies. Um, so there's a, there's a place for certain forms of private goods, uh, but capitalism will not get us out of climate change. Uh, I'm absolutely clear on that. <laughs> Andrea, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, this book is really fascinating, and I think people who are activists would be fascinated how uh, the pursuit of water as a right and the pursuit of water as a commodity can have so many things in common. This really is a fascinating book, and like another book that we uh, discussed earlier on this week's show, I really like the philosophical inquiry into the idea of what is a commodity and what is a right. I really enjoyed this book. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. This has been great. Thank you so much. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. And Alex has this week's question from hell, which is, where are you going on your final vacation? Where are you going on your final vacation? The person with the best answer gets a book we featured on last week's show, Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas by Sociocultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore. Okay, Alex, I believe you have some responses so far to the question from hell. Uh, where are you going on your final vacation? Mark C. says, the tropical paradise up on the North Pole. <laughs> Chris H. says, Chuck's house. <laughs> uh, Muriel C. says, inland. And Adam A. says, well, I just flew up from the West Coast to hang out in Royal Oak for literally less than 24 hours, so I guess I can die now? Yeah. At least there's decent beer. Royal Oak sounds like a fancy place. <laughs> not. It not. Uh, Joe S. says, Iowa? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. And uh, finally, Wally R. says, Armageddon. Who said inland? Uh, that was Muriel C. Muriel C. Inland. That is a fantastic answer. All right. Uh, so listen throughout today's show to hear more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. The UAW is on strike against the bosses at General Motors. Oh, sorry. One second, one second, one second. Oh, no, I'm not introducing them. Don't oh, worry. This my is bad. just the pre-intro. Uh, the UAW is on strike against the bosses at General Motors, which is weird because the UAW has been in bed with the bosses for decades, selling out their workers so much that the number of U.S. auto workers has dropped from over 400,000 GM workers in 1982 to closer to 50,000 today. We'll get the much-needed historical context so we can better understand the ongoing strike. When we hear from activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams in a few minutes, he wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers, and the big three American automakers. So, Alex, if you're not busy right now, the most hellish word of my week, the word I read while reading the work of one of this week's guests, a word I'm too stupid and illiterate to understand, is this week, courtesy of the writing of our guest earlier on this week's show, teacher and translator, Adam Kotzko, author of the N Plus One magazine article, The Evangelical Mind, wherein Adam revealed to us that evangelicalism is nothing more than a religious rationalization for the believer's hyper-consumerism that's destroying their children's stuff. Fun stuff. The most hellish word of the week for me, as if, as it proves, Adam Kotzko is way smarter than I am. Alex, are you ready? I want to get your guesses as right, to shoot. if you've heard this one. Bricolage. Bricolage. Yes. 
You do know what it is. No, I've heard the word. I uh, don't know what it is. Do you know how it's spelled? Uh, B-R-I-C-O-L-A-G-E? Yes. yes. And oddly, it's bricolage, not bricolage. So, any guess? No guess whatsoever? Anybody out there at home you want to uh, If you radio? think you're stupid and illiterate, you're the one who actually reads all the books. I just book these people. I have no idea. <laughs> the definition of the most hellish word of my week as it reveals Adam Kotzko is a freaking genius, and I'm an idiot. Bricolage is, in art or literature, construction or creation from a diverse range of available things. Construction or creation from a diverse range of available things. As in, one of the artist Tyree Guyton's abandoned homes turned into sculpture within Detroit's Heidelberg district that sadly burned down famously had the inside and out covered in a bricolage of baby dolls. One of the artist Tyree Guyton's abandoned homes turned into sculpture within the Heidelberg project that sadly burned down, famously had the inside and out covered in a bricolage of baby dolls. So thanks to Adam Kotzko for yet again proving the guests on This Is Hell are considerably more intelligent than me, than I. See? On the bonus fifth hour of This Is Hell This Week, our Patreon podcast, which we stream live exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And all subscribers have access to, uh, as well as like 200 other past Patreon podcasts. I mentioned how I witnessed a crime, but where I was witnessing this wonderful crime, it wasn't illegal at all. And it was the greatest thing I've ever seen and smelled and touched in my life. We also played our 2014 interview with journalist and researcher Andrew Kennis, who was on our show earlier this week. And if you missed Andrew on the show discussing why El Paso attracts so much racist hate, you can hear that conversation at thisishell.com. But we shared our interview with Andrew from five years earlier, again, 2014, when he was explaining how what was going down in Chicago related to the case against El Chapo was revealing real problems at the DEA. The only way to hear me describe the crime that isn't a crime anymore, but still is a crime despite decriminalization in Illinois, and find out what Chicago and El Chapo showed the world about the DEA, the only way to do all that is to subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to KCM for signing up this week. And we really do need a lot more subscribers, so please show your support and get stuff from your friends here at This Is Hell by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Subscribe, and every week get a fifth bonus hour of This Is Hell that includes a new monologue by me, behind-the-scenes dope on what's happening with the show, and a lot is happening on the show behind the scenes right now. Uh, for subscribing, we'll also send you a thank you uh, note with This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you can subvert public ads with a cartoon bubble saying This Is Hell. See how all our listeners are placing stickers on ads in public at This Is Hell Radio on Instagram. Patreon patrons also get all of our gifts at thisishell.com when you click on support for donations of five bucks less than non-subscribers. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. 
manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. For decades, the UAW worked with the bosses at General Motors to supposedly increase market share by conceding to job losses and wage and benefit cuts, gutting the actual membership of the union. Here to explain to us why the UAW chose that course and what that history means for today's UAW strike against GM, we have the honor of having on our show activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams, who wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three American Automakers. You can find that article at monthlyreview.org. Welcome to This is Hell, Thomas. Hi, Chuck. Greetings from Michigan. Greetings. Thank you, sir. That's my home state. Very glad to hear about it. Uh, So to you, how predictable? I mean, it seems from your writing that you could have predicted this strike years and years ago, but it just never happened. So how predictable do you think the current UAW strike against GM was? Well, it's a strike that should have taken place 20 years ago. Um, you subject the rank and file to enough pain long enough, and they're going to be willing to hit the streets. The last time they did this, back in 2007, they were out for 40 hours. Um, These folks are out now for 19 hours, or 19 days now. And uh, I've joined the picketers a couple times in the last couple weeks at a couple different uh, plants. And I'm I'm really heartened to see um, uh, how excited a lot of these workers are. A lot of them are the temp workers that are gaining no seniority. They're... They've got low wages, but they're hoping to get something from this. They're hoping to get parity on their wages. They're hoping to get some security. Did you see at the strikes that you went to, did you see a lot of non-auto workers, a lot of affinity from outsiders, or were the strikers mostly uh, those members of the union and their family members? They were mostly strikers and the family members, but what what I did know was a lot of people uh, encouraging the strikers. In past strikes, I recall being on the picket line back in 94 where um, it seemed like most of the people, they were catcalling the strikers, telling them get back to work. And, but now, you know, after, you know, after what we've witnessed in the economy now, the lost wages, uh, you know, the, the lack of recovery, in the Flint area, there's a lot of a lot of encouragement, a lot of hope from others in the community that uh, they want the strikers to, to succeed. How how important do you think that public support is for labor activism? Labor activism being reactivated. A lot of people, a lot of young people on the left have been urging, and just not young people on the left, but a lot of people have been urging for a renaissance of the labor organizing movement. So how important is that public support for labor organizing to, again, be reborn? It's essential. Uh, Labor um, organizing, coverage in in the private sector now is Boy, it's, I think it's down around 7% or less, and we haven't seen numbers like that since the beginning of the early, the early 20th century, you know, prior to the Depression. Um, the sit-down strike in Flint was largely community-driven. It was, it was pushed by the community. Um, through the 80s and 90s, you saw uh, support for the unions drop off generally. 
from media campaigns, from from corporate media campaigns or you know, anti-union organizations, um, portraying unions as as you know greedy and and workers uh, you know overpaid. Well, that certainly isn't the case now. You've got people out, that are out there in these factories, and like I say in my essay, you've got you know six, seven different wage layers. You've got folks without any benefits. Um, they're getting food assistance. Um, you know, I think generally the community wants to see this strike uh, succeed. You've seen strikes with the teachers, uh, and in what's interesting about these strikes is they're they're taking place in the south. Uh, they're traditional uh, 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 union unfriendly uh, regions of the country. So, um, yeah, I think we're seeing a resurgence of it, I, and it's coming from you know the new emerging sectors. And we, just in manufacturing. we also saw the teachers' strikes a few years ago, uh, the ones that started here in Chicago yeah. back in 2012. But more recently, the ones mm-hmm. in, like, West Virginia, as you were saying, it's, it is surprising right. when we have the stereotype of the South and not being for labor organizing. And then here we see in West Virginia, and like you were saying with UAW, strikes in the South. So what to you explains what changed for years and years uh, teachers had turned their back teachers unions had turned their back on the strategy of strikes uh, the west virginia strike was not approved by their union as you were saying uh, this uh, strike that's happening with uaw against gm right now should have happened decades ago 20 30 even 40 years ago this uh, should have happened uh, starting back in 1982 when there were over 400,000 uaw workers at gm and now there's around 50,000 so these strikes should have been happening this whole time what explains to you why not only this strike is happening now with the UAW against GM, but why strikes seem to be re-emerging in general. Well, it's it's this frustration with with the the old institutions. There's frustration with with the leadership of the UAW itself. They're like I say on the picket line. The, the the picketers I talked to they they were heartened by the language they were hearing from Vice President Dittes, uh UAW vice president uh, taking a militant stand, not just giving it uh, uh, you know lip service. Uh, as far as generally why why there's an upsurge, it's interesting. Uh, I was listening to some media reports of, of the uh, teachers' strikes a couple of years ago, and um, these teachers they they were referring to uh, labor unions. The, the reporters were and. And the teachers themselves, they wanted to distance them, themselves from that. But here they are behaving collectively as a union, winning their demands, but yet they still wanted to shy away from that, the union word. Um, I think a general hopelessness, a loss, a loss in faith of our uh, uh, politicians, policymakers, uh, traditional uh, institutions that they've looked to in the past. You know, but for... You know, it's it's no surprise you see the cynicism towards politicians. Um, unfortunately, it's it's so divisive right now. It doesn't seem like we can have anything happen. But um, yeah, it's 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 almost like the workers are, are they they want to take matters into their own hands. 
In the introduction to your writing, it states that yours is a somewhat complex tale of what happens when a labor union structured to be unaccountable to the rank-and-file membership embraces a system of labor management cooperation rather than a class-conscious understanding that workers and their employers are adversaries with fundamentally opposed goals and desires. Unfortunately, what is true of the UAW is true for many U.S. labor unions that the UAW, an iconic union born of heroic class struggle, could sink into corruption, which is bloated and dictated bureaucracy only shows in microcosm what ails much of organized labor in the United States and just how difficult it will be to rebuild a labor movement worthy of the name. How far do you believe that corruption... Well, let me ask you a different question. When you hear corruption in union, okay, when I hear those words together, I think mob, I think the outfit, I think organized crime. Who or what corrupted the UAW, because I want to get past that media stereotype. Well, yeah, I agree. Uh, I've been studying this for a long time. The, the problem with the UAW is, uh, like, like any other aging organization, they lose sight of their organizing principles. They become bureaucratic. They distance the leadership. They distance themselves from, let's say, the rank and file, whether it's you know, corporate rank and file, or it's the union itself. Um, and uh, the, the thing with uh, uh, collective bargaining in this country, it's to keep it a worker-centered, accountable system, it's overseen by the federal government. There's labor laws that ensured that. Before that, you had companies setting up their own unions. The UAW is like many other unions that they have, you know, very uh, uh, specific uh, constitutional rules that ensure democracy, but uh, that required system is replaced by an emergent system of politics. In the UAW, uh, they they established a, a, a caucus or a party system that essentially made the politics controlled by a single party um, that weren't accountable to the rank and file. And when I talk about um, this uh, changing of the bargaining strategy uh, that was was worker-centered to uh, uh, focus on uh, the competitiveness competitiveness of the employers, uh, that emerged from the turmoil of the, the 70s and 80s. The plants were closing, and uh, you know, rather than rather than fighting back, um, the leadership of the union they got into a, a strategy of, of, of competitiveness uh, with the employer. It was a partnership, you know. And in, a, in an ideal world where there is mutual trust, uh, I suppose that could work. But we have there's inherently opposing adversarial interests between management and labor. And they lost sight of that. And uh, when they engaged in these, in these programs with General Motors, uh, Ford and Chrysler, um, vast sums of money were involved. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars. And it, none of it was overseen. Now, with a typical labor union, they have to file annual financial reports. The government oversees, there's accountability to the rank and file. But that money that flows into the union through these joint programs, uh, 
uh, uh, excuse me, isn't overseen by anyone. And um, it is a complex system. Uh, let, let me back up. What they did was is they entered into these these uh, agreements, these these partnership agreements, where they um, they established uh, job training for displaced workers and health and safety programs, and they administered these programs with um, through uh, an organization that they set up in partnership with management. They established nonprofit corporations to administer these programs. And that gave birth to these training centers that you're reading about now, about the scandals with the money. Uh, the car companies financed those training centers uh, to the tune on average of $27.5 million annually. And the union, they assigned staff uh, to those training centers, and they get reimbursed for their salaries and wages. So essentially the training centers function as conduits of uh, what is essentially corporate money, and it ends up you know, in the union coffers. It seems like it's just a system, a slush fund, and a system for bribes. You write about over $200,000 worth of purchases were charged to UAW, vice president of the uh, Chrysler Department. Uh, National Training Center funds paid for over $262,000 on his mortgage. What makes these national training centers so ripe for corruption? What is it about them? And do you, and when you examine them, when you look at these nat- natural national training centers, do you see that they were intentionally made as this kind of slush fund bribe scheme? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, originally, when the joint programs, this uh, the first. Uh, uh, version of this in General Motors was quality work life. It was introduced by uh, 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 Bluestone back in 1973. Uh, he and others were, were believers in giving workers more input to their jobs so they have more worker job control. And they set up these training programs to to enhance their, their employability. And if you remember, these people were losing their jobs and they weren't necessarily coming back to the to the auto industry. So there was a legitimate purpose in the beginning. There was a lot of benefits to rank-and-file workers. But at the same time, to administer these programs, they created this parallel bureaucracy. And when I mean parallel bureaucracy, these nonprofit corporations are co-administered or co-directed by the UAW and the car companies. So you have an equal amount of of union people and management people running these things. And for every one of these programs, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's several jobs that, uh, appointed jobs that are, that are established through them and financed through these joint programs. The, what makes this so ripe for corruption is that there was no oversight of it. There was no public accountability. Um, I, I would like to think that what took place at Chrysler was the exception, but I guess we're going to find out because the federal government's investigating it now. What you had at Chrysler was is you had a scheme set up, and from what I read and from what I understand reading the court back, it's, it was it was the management counterpart. It was like a belly, the, the 
the the Chrysler uh, director of industri- or industrial relations, who uh, started this this scheme of stealing money. I don't know if it was to influence the union. I think it was just people stealing money. It was there. They had the opportunity, so they did it. You were mentioning the lack of oversight of union activities. We've had a lot of people point to how the United, people in the United States like to believe that we live in a democracy, yet that democracy mm-hmm. seems to stop at the school door and seems to stop at the workplace door. Does democracy stop mm-hmm. at the union door as well? No, it doesn't. There's, there's, there's a lot of accountability to labor unions. And like I was saying, and that, that's why this is complex. The accountability ends when you set up these, these, these separate and distinct entities, the training centers, these training corporations. And, you know, they didn't just do it in the auto industry. There's a variety of others, but I'll write about that in my book. But, um, you know, the big money is in, these, is in these car companies. The accountability doesn't end at the door uh, of, the, of the labor union, but the way... They administer democracy within the union itself. They have a, you know, how the politics are 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 functioning within the UAW. There's a single party. If there's an opposition organization raises its head in the UAW, they're crushed. And I write about that in the essay too. It, the extreme lengths they'll go to eliminate opposition, and and that's what's. That right there is what has, has made the UAW itself unaccountable. There's really no true democracy within the UAW. They go through the motions. They have constitutional conventions. But the meetings are all packed with party loyalists. You know, you have to be a member of the mainstream caucus if you really want to rise through the ranks within the union. And, you know, I think that's common with, with any large aging bureaucracy. What is the dissent that the UAW opposes? Well, more recently you had the New Directions movement. Um, when uh, members, that, when they, uh, when they uh, uh, became outraged by the concessions and in the, in the, what they considered coziness of these joint programs, various uh, dissent organizations arose within the ranks throughout the country, but more notably the New Directions movement. Um, Jerry Tucker tried to run for office uh, at the 86 convention, and, um, uh, you know, they, the administration caucus essentially stole, stole the election. They, they allowed uh, 28 illegal votes to be cast. Um, the Department of Labor, Department of Justice sued the union. It took them, it was a two-year process. Uh, Jerry Tucker was installed eventually, but he was only months away from the, uh, from the end of his, his term. And then, uh, you know, they find they find a way to litigate. They find a way, you know, to uh, to stop any real opposition from rising from the ranks, either either legally or illegally. Apparently, you know. 
We are speaking with activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams, who wrote the monthly re- review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three American Automakers. You can find that article at monthlyreview.org. Thomas received a Ph.D. from Michigan State in 2010. His dissertation, UAW Incorporated, The Triumph of Capital, examines the corruption in the UAW. And Thomas's forthcoming book is based on that dissertation and the impact institutional corruption within the UN, UAW has on the rank and file. You write, this is the story of how the UAW, one of America's most progressive and corruption-free labor unions, was transformed by cooperative labor management schemes from a membership-driven to a capital-driven organization. Do you see any signs that the UAW will stop being a capital-driven and return to a more membership-driven organization? And is the current strike a potential of an end to their capital rather than member-driven focus? I guess we're going to see that in the federal investigation that's going on into the union. I would like to hold out hope that... um, you know this shakeup that you're seeing with these with these corrupt leaders that they're, that that are being ensnared in the federal probe will inspire uh, uh, UAW officials with good strong trade union values. And believe me, they're there. It's just that you know they have to they have to play within a system that well you know when you get the the, the top officers of your, your union behaving the way they do, it's kind of tough. But um, all eyes are on this, and uh, even the the lowest of the rank and file, and I mean, and I mean the the lowest of status in the rank and file, and that is these flex workers, these temp workers. They're energized by this. Uh, they really want to hold these people accountable. They're they're infuriated about uh, the situation that uh, this leadership has has put them in, uh, eliminating pensions. Uh, you know, creating part-time jobs, you know, flex jobs that people work just a few hours a work a, a week on call with no benefits. Um, you know, that's that's a system that has to stop, and that's a system that's only going to stop is if the if is if the union itself is held accountable. And I think you know this this strike might hold out hope for that. It's I'd... a it's a do or die moment for the union, really. The thing I don't really understand, and you can clear it up for me, Thomas, I'm sure, is that what the unions were promising was the kind of concessions that they were making to the automakers, to GM in particular, was that this was going to help their market share, the the uh, yeah. company's market share, and it was going to help out the unions in that it would protect, it, it would at least have some worker protections involved as well. And now we see a huge decline in the number of workers, and we see a decline in the market share. So if this doesn't work, if this business unionism doesn't work for the workers or the bosses, apparently, because the market share has dropped, why is this still pursued? Or am I getting something wrong? Well, I think it's worked out just fine for the bosses. They've eliminated over three-quarters of the, of the, of the workforce at General Motors. Um, they've, they've lost more than half of their market share, but market share is a competitive measure. Uh, you know, they're making a lot more cars now. Now, even though uh, General Motors has like 46, 48,000 employees, there's, you know, they're still making nearly twice as many cars as they were back, back in the 80s. Okay. So, uh, 
you know, what, $38 billion in profits since, since the since the bankruptcies for General Motors? It seems like management's doing just fine. Uh, the insanity is, is, is why you would continue, why would the union uh, continue to follow this, this strategy of competitiveness, bargaining cycle after bargaining cycle for the last 37 years when it was clearly decimating the workforce? And, you know... You know, that's my only explanation that I can see is is it allowed the international union to expand this bureaucracy, this 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 really peculiar bureaucracy that I call UAW Incorporated, where you end up having uh, th- this whole joint bureaucracy that's not accountable to the rank and file. They're not elected, and they're they're paid they're bankrolled by the car companies. So essentially. You know the car companies; they have the kind of union they they want, or, or that they paid for. You so know, the car companies are seem to be doing just fine. So is the then what you're saying? What you're not alluding to or implying? You're just <laughs> straight out saying is that the uh, there is a conflict of interest between the union bureaucracy and the uh, auto workers themselves. How aware? are union workers of that conflict, of that disconnect between them and their leadership? And if there is that disconnect, then again, why now? Why the strike now? Well, like I said when we started, Payne's a good teacher. These people have to live this every day. Uh, You know, I've got folks telling me that... uh, you know, they, they distrust, they fear their union officials in the plants as much as they did management when I was there. And I, I just think that that's astounding. You, uh, you know, they view, I mean, they, you know, a lot of these folks, they view, they view the union the same way they view, they view management. That's just amazing that that's the direction that this went in, because as you write about the UAW's beginning, Walter Ruther was elected UAW president in 1946 and held office until an untimely death in a plane crash in 1970. Mm -hmm. In a break from his socialist past, Ruther rejected class-based unionism and became an adherent of Samuel Gomper's style business unionism, choosing to work within the capitalist system. Ruther hoped not to replace capitalism but to transform it into a more humane economic system. How would you rate his success at making capitalism more humane? After all, he did get higher wages, better benefits, job security for union members, at least for a time. How successful was business unionism at making capitalism more humane? It, it, it really was. It really was for, for a time, certainly during Luther's time. Um, but there was some huge changes in the markets in the 80s, and that was right about the time that the last of the uh, the Ruther cohort, the the Ruther leadership that were around during the formation of the union, left the union. So then you have a, a group of leaders that came in, the, the next generation that came of age within this bureaucratic system that was disconnected from the rank and file, that... Uh, saw saw the labor conflict as something that was executed at the front office and not at the point of production anymore. Um, they saw themselves as these bureaucratic, higher status people. You know, I, uh, members of the union. There's you know, there's workers that have status and power in the union. There's members who have power and status 
and then there's 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 members who you know work in the plants and pay dues. I mean, there's a class distinction within the union itself. Which is amazing, and I'll explain why. You write that success at the bargaining table ironically contributed to the labor movement's demise. Contract gains that lifted the rank and file into a middle-class lifestyle separated them from the class struggle that made it all possible. The UAW leadership and the workers lost touch with the union's organizing principles and identified more with management as labor conflicts shifted from the point of production to the front office, as you were just saying. Did a mission not based in classism lead unions to lose touch with the working class because because that seems to mirror an abandonment of classism within the Democratic Party. Do you think that there's some sort of connection between... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, because, you know, the, for, for years, for decades, the union always was talking about in, in improving the lot of all workers, and that was the rhetoric coming out of the union. I think with, with Ruther it was sincere. He was he was actively involved in, in in presenting policy. He counseled presidents, you know, all sorts of you know his 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 new to trade initiative. He he was a real visionary that came across with policy ideas, and we just don't have union. We don't have leadership like that anymore. We just don't. We have people that are like I say. They came they came of age within a bureaucracy that saw themselves as something other than you know, the rank and file. So you write that the uh, purge of key militants, almost all left-wingers during the Ruther years, deprived UAW of its ability to resist management's offensive. Instead of fighting back, the UAW leadership adopted a policy of promoting corporate competitiveness. Untrammeled by the quaint notion of rank-and-file solidarity, the administration caucus abandoned constitutional objectives, quote, to improve working conditions, create a uniform system of shorter hours, higher wages, health care and pensions, to maintain and protect the interests of workers when they adopted jointness. So had the UAW pursued a more class-oriented approach and not purged leftists from their ranks, in your opinion, would the union necessarily be any stronger or weaker today had they moved to the left at the very beginning? I feel they'd be stronger because they would have never they would have never uh, uh, separated themselves from the community. You know, like you was asking me earlier about um, the community involvement with this strike or support. Um, I, it's essential. Um, in, in, if you if you remember, I say that you know those those benefits, those uh, contract gains, lifted workers into a middle class lifestyle. I didn't say it lifted them into a middle class because that's not what it is. I think that's that's a term we throw around a lot today, like you know the middle class. Well, you know, my wife and I we ran a food bank for nearly ten years, and I got to tell you, every person that was in there for food, they were all middle class. Okay. So uh, I think there's a real problem with that. Most of us are working class people. Most of us work for wages, okay? And for some reason, we seem to have uh, lost touch with that. We've lost touch with, you know, the institutions, our working class institutions like labor unions have lost touch with the rank and file, with the communities that, that formed them. 
You write that the 1980s was a decade of transformation for the UAW and GM. For the first time since the 1930s, the union and the corporation faced existential threats that coincided with the worst economic recession since the Great Depression. It was the decade of the Reagan Revolution. Ronald Reagan was elected president, promising to get government off the backs of the people. By dismantling 50 years of progressive federal policies, he attacked social programs and the institutions working-class Americans relied on. Reagan's confrontation with a professional air traffic controller organization in 1981 foreshadowed of the decline of organized labor. So why hasn't that led to a strong opposition, even hatred toward Reagan by workers whose wages are today still depressed by Reaganomics? Why do we see any kind of support for Ronald Reagan or any popularity amongst union workers? Wait, you're saying why why there's support amongst work uh, union workers for... For Reagan, for Ronald Reagan, because that's a big point that they, you know, the media always wants to make. And again, this might be a misleading uh, point and a misleading, misleading narrative of the media. But that uh, so many blue collar workers, so many union workers, voted for Reagan. Well, well, there's there's a number of reasons for that, and I'm not sure it has to do with jobs based things. I think it has to do with, um, you know, cultural things, you know issues of race, uh, but um, uh, the reason why the workers are, are supporting conservative politicians, is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. Because I don't really, I've never really understood that. I've never understood uh, if, uh, what, because, you know, they always say people vote with their wallets, but apparently the union members who supported Reagan were certainly not voting with their wallets. Well, it's because they were disaffected because, uh, in my view, the, the Democratic Party just took them for took uh, them for granted for their support. Uh, the Democratic Party came every became every bit of a Wall Street uh, political party as as uh, as the Republicans did, you know. Um, and that's and that's what you're seeing today too. You have a lot of disaffected people that. Uh, all of the uh, traditional institutions, whether they're labor unions or political parties that they relied on, they feel abandoned by, and for good reason. You write that the UAW's 50th anniversary, and this is a good reason right here, the UAW's 50th anniversary celebration was scarred by prejudice, corruption, and violence as opposing forces converged on the 1986 28th UAW Constitutional Convention in Anaheim, California. Disgruntled workers from locals opposed to concessions, the national rank and file against concessions, and the nascent New Directions movement that you mentioned earlier worried that the UAW was becoming a company union. Opposition delegates were insulted, humiliated, and beaten. To what extent can you attribute any yes. power the UAW has on intimidation against their own members? I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. To what extent can you attribute any power the UAW has on intimidation against their own workers, their own members? Uh, I, I guess I'm not sure. Uh, intimidation against the workers in the plants, I can tell you that uh, they don't feel that the union is looking out for their interests. Uh, you know, they're they're afraid to, you know, stand up, you know, to 
to have their voice heard, you know. And that's and that's one thing that's that's good about this labor strike to see these people out there actually taking action and feeling empowered. But uh, you know, the '86 strike, there was a lot of uh, these various uh, dissident movements that are mentioned in that paragraph. They converged on that convention, and, and they they truly expected that they were going to have a, a democratic process. Well. You know, uh, Dave Yatar, he recounts seeing members from Region 5, Jerry Tucker's region, beaten. Uh, that was the convention where Jerry Tucker's election was stolen. They refused to let uh, uh, Victor Ruther speak because he came out in opposition to the Saturn Agreement. He came in in support of the New Directions movement, uh, you know, with, with ideas of uh, one member, one vote. Um uh, wanted to uh, end, you know, the the joint programs uh, to convert joint funds to union to to membership benefits, uh, and so on. They wanted to uh, they wanted to end that partnership. They wanted to end the concessions. The rank and file were angry, and that's and that you know that's probably the sort of the same sort of thing that that drives a, a union member to vote Republican or even to think he's Republican, you know. That's really fascinating. <laughs> because clearly, you know, because clearly the Republicans, they're, they're not interested in, 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 in serving the, the interests of, of workers or labor unions or, or organizations that empower workers. So it's, you know, you know, I'm with you. It's astonishing when I see people vote for either organizations or in, individuals who are against their interests. I, I just... You know, but I, I think it's it's out of frustration. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally buy that. We have been speaking with activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams, who wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three American Automakers, which you can find at monthlyreview.org. Thomas is going to have a forthcoming book based on his dissertation, his PhD dissertation, UAW Incorporated, The Triumph of Capital, and we look forward to that book being published. One last question for you, Thomas, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question for every one of our guests is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response labor organizing is an attempt at making capitalism a little less inhumane can humane capitalism exist i told you it was the question from hell absolutely but it has to be it has to be regulated it has to have boundaries it has to have accountability. You can't have free-willing capitalism. Capitalism is a wonderful engine for creating wealth, but it creates all sorts of inequity of wealth if there's no limits. And that is the answer from hell. Thank you so much, Thomas. I really appreciate you being on the show. Everybody should check out your writing at Monthly Review, and we look forward to your book coming out in the future, UAW Incorporated. Thanks so much for being on our show this week. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell in a few moments. During the moment of truth, we will have a very special Rosh Hashanah 
truth. This week's question from hell is, where are you going on your final vacation? Where are you going on your final vacation? The person with the best answer gets a book we featured on last week's show, Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas by sociocultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore. That interview and last week's show are both available at our website, thisishell.com. Alex, you have some more responses to this week's question from hell, sir? Yeah, I got the rest of them. Uh, where are you going? Not all of them because we're going to do some more sure. at the end. I'll yeah. hold a, yeah. a couple. Uh, anti-tanky cookies for anti-reactionary nookies, says to our question from hell, which, by the way, is where are you going for your final vacation? They said to hell. No, wait, <laughs> this is hell. Wait, so I get no vacation at all? Screw this. <laughs> Frank W. says to bed. Uh. Borky B. says hell. Uh, uh, Milijian, sorry for mispronouncing that name, uh, says Croatia. <laughs> All right. And uh, Derek K. says, Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Derek K. Mar-a-Lago. That is a good one, because that will be your last vacation, I think. You'll never come back from there. It's like the Gitmo for people on the left. Leave your answer now to still have a shot at Amelia's book, Destination Anthropocene. Just go to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Find the question from hell and leave your comment and answer there. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook at Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. And so far, 180 listeners have, and 179 of them gave us a five-star rating. Like Aaron, who this week gave us a five-star rating and left this comment. Chuck Mertz is tied for the best interviewer in the left media realm working today. Who is he tied with? That would be Glenn Ford at Black Agenda Report and Black Agenda Report. Black Agenda Radio and Black Agenda Report. If you aren't listening to This Is Hell every week, I promise there is a serious deficit in your understanding of the world we're living in. Thanks, Aaron. And Glenn is the best. And you can hear his podcast and read Glenn's writing all the time at blackagendareport.com. Glenn and Black Agenda Report have been by far the biggest online supporters of This Is Hell from the very beginning of the show back in 1996. So thanks to Aaron, thanks to Glenn and everyone at Black Agenda Report for everything they do for This Is Hell. We also want to thank the people who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support to support This Is Hell. Thanks this week goes to the tithing-like religious commitments of Brett and Magnificent Me. Thanks to both of you. Without your support and our subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell, what we are doing right now from a studio that you built would not be possible. You too can go to our website, click on support, and check out all the ways you can help the show out. And we'll give you and we'll give you some kind of gift for showing that support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We've got trucker caps and coffee mugs and flash drive histories of the 21st century and t-shirts and tote bags. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, during the moment of truth, Jeff has a very special Rosh Hashanah truth for us. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. And we had a huge crowd at This Is Hell office hours this past Wednesday, despite the rain and cold. And of course, we will be naming the winner of Amelia Moore's book, Destination Anthropocene, when we read the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth host chuck mertz producing this week's this is hell alex jerry alex i know you have fa on the line The Exceptional Jew, 
Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. On Twitter, a self-described yet nondescript lefty of few followers and little value reposted footage of a non-combatant Palestinian woman being felled from behind by a sniper shot, reportedly fired by Israeli defense forces. I have no problem believing the IDF kills civilians, children, and journalists semi-regularly. Among the great disservices Israel has rendered unto the Jews are the ideas that Zionism in pre-1948 Palestine was a peaceful movement set upon by evil Bedouins incited by the surrounding Arab world, a movement that did not forcibly relocate segments of its internal Arab population, that Zionist and eventually Israeli soldiers routinely demonstrate legendary humaneness and generosity, unlike soldiers among the rest of humanity, that if Israel is guilty of anything, it's of being too fair, too lenient, too apologetic about defending itself, and that if torture and other excesses of policing do occur, it's entirely justified. Incidentally, on this, the week of Rosh Hashanah, this self-described and furthermore inconsequential lefty went on to say about the killing, what other, quote, state, unquote, would get away with this? Hey, I have no trouble seeing the establishment of the Jewish state as facilitated by the West for reasons of strategic utility and evangelical eschatology, or seeing the ongoing geopolitical relationship between its government, its military, its intelligence arm, and the West, and specifically the USA, as a cynical, mutually beneficial exploitation of that usefulness. And I see all those realities as creating continued hostility, violence, and political instability in the Middle East and other parts of the world. However, when I see the rhetorical question, what other, quote, state, unquote, would get away with this, asked by a self-described lefty, I detect a false superlative creeping very close to what left-baiting Israel chauvinist mouthpieces of the Barry Weiss ilk would characterize as anti-Semitism. Normally, I consider accusations of anti-Semitism leveled at those who dare criticize the policies of the Israeli government to be without merit a jingoistic attempt to stigmatize said criticism. But a rhetorical question like the one above comes across as the flip side of the record, calling Israel a uniquely noble and humane nation. Both exceptionalisms, the philo-Semitic and the anti-Semitic, are obstacles to any discussion that might lead to constructive outcomes. What other, quote, state, unquote, would get away with what? Shooting innocent women? You might remember women being executed during the 1990s by the Taliban in Afghanistan. They publicly beat and executed women all the time, not sure if they've ever stopped. And the quote-unquote state par excellence, Daesh, a.k.a. Islamic State, has carried on the tradition. Did say the Taliban get away with it? Well, Rawa, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, in addition to secretly educating and trying to protect women was asking for outside intervention from the international community throughout the 1990s, as I recall, and nothing happened until after September 11, 2001, and that was pointedly not in response to violence against Afghan women. So yes, I'm thinking they got away with it. Israel is a state. It's not a quote, state, unquote. States are often built on foundations of bloody conquest and injustice. States imprison and kill and get away with it. That's almost the definition of a state. But you're right. Let's be specific. Which states have killed civilians and gotten away with it? 
There's Albania, Algeria, Argentina, Bangladesh, Bolivia, Brazil, and Burma, Canada, and Chad, Colombia, and Congo, Chile, Czechoslovakia, Ecuador, El Salvador, England, Fiji, France, and Greece. There's Gambia and Ghana, Germany and Guatemala, Haiti and Honduras, also India and Kenya, Libya, Liberia, Mauritius and Morocco, Nepal, Nigeria, Pakistan and Panama, Paraguay, Philippines, Rwanda, and Spain, Sudan, Syria, Thailand, Uzbekistan, Vietnam, Zambia, Zimbabwe, oh, and let's not forget the old favorites, China, Japan, North and South Korea, Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, Australia, and the good old USA. Claiming special status for Israel as a singularly bad actor or uniquely illegitimate presence in the world is neither intelligent nor accurate. Why would you even assert such unique status? I mean, what else is unique about Israel, one is tempted to ask. Even Barry Weiss, who is able to be wrong about just about everything, is right at least to wonder if there's anti-Semitism at work. This is something I'm loath to say. But when you come from a culture that lionizes as a great industrialist, the same man who authored The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem, and then you see a rhetorical question implying that the world's sole Jewish state, a state at least democratic enough to have voting seats in its legislature for women and minority ethnicities, is somehow the only state, not even a real state, but a quote-unquote state, singled out as alone being able to get away with killing innocent people, a blatantly untrue and demonstrably irrational implication. When you're a Jew and you see that happen, you have to wonder if this leftist is asserting, a la Henry Ford, that the international Jew is indeed the world's foremost problem. And you'd be correct to so wonder, no matter how fair or unfair you are. It is not unreasonable to wonder such a thing. I wish it were enough to say to leftists, don't make stupid assertions. But every ideology has its share of chronic ignoramuses. Nevertheless, as a Jew, I don't like anti-Semitic rhetoric, or rhetorical tropes. And as a member of the left, simply by virtue of criticizing capitalism as the root, trunk, branch, and fruit of injustice, I often find myself having to address self-proclaimed, albeit inconsequential, leftists' blatantly untrue and demonstrably irrational statements. It gets exasperating. It hurts the left's credibility on other issues. It gives bad faith pundits and politicians on the right and in the center rhetorical ammunition. And it takes precious time and energy away from other more productive endeavors like transforming the world economy into a chain of sustainable behavior instead of the factory archipelago running on slavery and exploitation and manufacturing garbage and poison that it is right now. How about we work on that? instead of figuring out stupid ways of laboring, labeling Jews as exceptionally virtuous or uniquely evil, huh? What do you say? This has been the moment of truth. Good day in Lashana Tova. Oh, what does that mean? Is that some kind of uh, dog whistle for Jews? That is a curse upon your children and <laughs> embryos. <laughs> Oh, Jeff. You know what word is not in our lexicon enough? Jeff Dorchin? Pro-Semite. Why do we only hear anti-Semite? Nobody, you know, that would be a great personalized license plate, right? Pro-Semite. Wouldn't that be awesome? Pro-Semite. Well, that would make you think, oh, he's a professional Semite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
which, you know, it's really hard to, I mean, actually, it depends on who you talk to, but it's hard to make money just being a Semite. Right, because you're an amateur Semite, right? I'm, well, no, actually, I've started being paid to be a Semite, but you know who's really pro? <laughs> that Rami guy. Have you seen his show on Hulu? The, the, uh, the Islamic uh, situation comedy? No. Very good. Very good. Very interesting. I hope it goes. I mean, he's a funny comedian. What's, but, the, what's uh, the name of the show? Rami, R A M Y. All right. I'll have to look into this. I can't believe you haven't heard of it. Oh, my goodness. Dude, Mr. TV. I know, exactly. Right. Uh, you, you watch real things where people say unscripted stuff and yell and scream like, you know, I don't know, those drunks on Fox News. Yes, I do watch football. Is that what you're trying to imply? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe right. I'm not willing to commit. Isn't it awesome that uh, we can now do four-hour shows even when there's just a one-hour show on WNUR? Oh, it's miraculous. It, is. it really is great. It I'm is. looking forward to more of this stuff. It, it was really good. All right, Jeffy. Until then, stay beautiful, my friend. Okay, Chucky, you as well. Love you, my brother. Love you. Bye-bye. Your bitter eulogy for capitalism. This is hell. I got more thanks. This time it's for those who publicly shared the show or interviews or segments via Facebook because if I checked every social industry outlet and listed everyone who shares the show in whatever way you do, this list would be even longer and more boring than it already is. Thanks to Nick Preston, Climate Change Battle Royale, Jake, Astrid, Jessica P., and Antonio, all for sharing our interview with Amelia Moore, author of Destination Anthropocene, about the... The Bahamas tourism industry, not the Obama's tourism industry, the Bahamas tourism industry, and that is going to be the prize for the person who has the best answer to this week's question from hell. We'll get to that in just a couple seconds. Also, thanks to Johnny, Julie, Marco. We also had dozens and dozens and dozens of listeners share our interview from a couple weeks ago with uh, Jody Dean on her new book, Comrade, including Patrick, Francesco, Jin, Stephen, Ian, Debs, Penn, Sonia, Jeff with one F, Gorilla Gramophonics, and Gabe. April. And gratitude to Lisa, George, Carissa, and Idiot Free Zone for sharing This Is Hell. I don't know why Idiot Free Zone would share This Is Hell. Makes no sense to me. Thanks, everyone, for sharing This Is Hell, no matter how you share it. Okay, let's get to the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, where are you going on your final vacation? Where are you going on your final vacation? The person with the best answer gets, as I was saying, a book we featured on last week's show, Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas by socio-cultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore. That interview and last week's show are both available at our website, thisishell.com. Alex, let's hear the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, four more responses to the question. Where are you going on your final vacation? Bozena B says, through the roof and underground. <laughs> uh, Garrett L says, Evanston. Steve C says, up. And finally, Chandler H says, is this the fabled retirement? <laughs> all right. So my favorites. Well, first of all, my answer to this week's question from hell, where are you going on your final vacation? I haven't desi- decided, to be honest with you. I really don't know yet. I figure six feet under might mean I'm buried alive and I don't want to get cremated because what if the flames wake me up out of a coma or something? I don't want to be fish food. Again, waking up to a shark eating you can't be all that great when you're old and feeble. So, where are you going to go on your final vacation? For me, I'm going to say Disney World. 
because I would love if my untimely and hopefully very stinky and messy death could keep people from ever attending that hellhole again. That makes this week's winner. Let's see. I like Chris H. saying that he's going to go to Chuck's house, my house, for his final vacation, even though I don't know if we have room. I like Derek K. saying that he's going to Mar-a-Lago. Bozana B. saying that they're going to go through the roof and underground. But come on. The best one is Mary L.C., especially in light of this week's uh, prize, Destination Anthropocene, for the best answer to the question from hell. Mary L.C. saying that her final vacation is going to be inland. Mariel, all you have to do is message us via Facebook with your mailing address, and we will send you the book in the mail immediately. You have won a book featured on last week's show, Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas, by Amelia Moore. Alex, who's on next Tuesday's live show at 2 p.m. Chicago Central Time, which will be will have its broadcast world premiere next Saturday morning on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago's Sound Experiment. So what's happening next Tuesday? Uh, next week we're talking with sociologist uh, Andrea S. Boyles, who has a book, You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. Uh, and nobody else booked for the Tuesday show yet, Yeah, I got a bunch of requests out. Uh, then on Wednesday, join Alex and myself and other crew members, as well as listeners of This Is Hell, as This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think. And last week there were brats and Greek salad, too, at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, a.k.a. Little India. Come on by Wednesday evenings beginning at around 6, 6-ish. Meet myself, other staff members, and people who, like you, are actually twisted enough to enjoy This Is Hell. Thanks to the people who joined us this past Wednesday. Leo, Heather, Anna, Leslie, John, another John, Johnny, Margaret, Eric, Adele, Wally, Steve, Dave. It was a big crowd. Shelly, Elliot, Jordan, Brian, and everyone else who I forgot to give free books and This Is Hell advertising stickers too, which is what I'm supposed to be doing. During this, uh, during office hours. Don't for, don't forget uh, who else showed up uh, on Wednesday. The rat that uh, was in Mel's mouth when he was eating in front of everyone. Yeah, he was eating a rat in front of everyone. Then there was like a blood smudge on the ground, and I've decided, uh, Alex, I want to see if you're up for this. Uh, should we be drawing chalk our outlines around the animals he kills? Oh, I, uh, office hours is a fascinating time, everybody. <laughs> so my apologies, everybody, but I'm usually having so much fun during office hours that I forget. So you got to help me remember to give you books and stickers. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from our new studio. And if you drop by, we'll show you all our swag. Alex, who is going to be on the third and fourth hours of this week's This Is Hell, which streams live at uh, thisishell.com next Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago Central Standard Time, which will then be broadcast for the first time ever next Saturday on WNUR. Yeah, things are kind of a mess already. We're, we're getting to a regular schedule. Uh, well, I, I believe I have booked uh, Henrik Mathiasen, who will have his book, or have, have the article from Dark Mountain Project, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy. And it's all about Equinor, Norway's state-owned oil and gas company, riding headlong into the world's fossil-fueled sunset. And you got to get the, the rest of the guests booked by Monday morning because i got to start working on the new guests. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, sorry about that. And last night, a decision was made beginning on me and my girlie's anniversary. I haven't even told Alex this yet, even though I was supposed to last night. I just forgot. <laughs> Starting Monday, October 14th, we will be trans- transitioning, transitioning to our new identity as a show 
that streams live on weekdays at thisishell.com. Of course, we'll still be airing the broadcast premiere of each week's This Is Hell Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Chicago time on WNUR 89.3 FM Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment. But to hear us live and in the raw, you now have to go to thisishell.com where we will be streaming live and video streaming soon too. Every Monday at 10 a.m. Chicago time for one hour. Tuesdays at noon for two hours, and Wednesdays at 10 in the morning again, just like Mondays. And we'll still have office hours Wednesday evenings, but I'll be able to stay out later as I won't be facing down some horrible show deadline as I have the last few years on Wednesday night. So next week, live for two hours at thisishell.com on Tuesday at 2 p.m., then uh, on Monday and Friday, Monday and Wednesday at 10 a.m. So let me make sure you get that. Monday, Friday, or Monday, Wednesday, 10 a.m., Tuesday at 2 p.m., or at noon. See, I'm getting this all wrong. See, uh, we'll our schedule out. is so screwed up right now, it's driving me crazy. Yeah, we'll get it figured out. One everybody. more week of these two two-hour shows, and then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, live streaming at thisishell.com. And, of course, you'll be able to hear all of this on Saturday mornings live on po- WNU. Uh, podcast always just comes out, too, so uh, subscribe to the pod if you can. Exactly. Uh, let's see. I want to thank Jeff Dorchin for doing The Moment of Truth. Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi, not only for Rotten History, but he was the person who suggested this week's Hangover Cure. Spaghetti Aglio e Olio. Uh, so thanks to activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams, who told us about the UAW strike against GM and gave us some historical context. Thanks to anthropologist Andrea Ballestero, author of A Future History of Water. Andrea is associate professor of anthropology at Rice University, and you can find out more about her at andreaballestero.com. We also want to thank our guest from earlier this week, Ben Wargaft, who we talked to about fake meat. Uh, Adam Kotzko, who proved to be far smarter than I, and he also showed us and explained to us why evangelicalism is nothing more than a religious rationalization for being a dick. And uh, thanks to researcher and journalist Andrew Kennis, who was on our show to talk about why El Paso is such a site of racial hatred. The interview, or our interview from 2014 with Andrew on uh, the role that Chicago played in uh, with El Chapo and revealing some problems over the DEA back in 2014. That interview is our interview this week on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. So make sure you uh, subscribe there. All right. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Alex Jerry produced this week's show. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.